Okay. Well, we have gathered for a phase of our worship that the Lord Jesus Christ instructed us to carry out a ritual to be performed in His name. The only one that He instructed the church as a, a body to do. This we call it Lord's Supper. And it is a remembrance because he says, do this in remembrance of me. So it is a remembrance of our Lord Jesus Christ for what he did for us. So, in a simple way, when you take the bread, that bread signifies that you belong to the body of Christ, the church of Christ. When you partake of the cup, you are saying that you are sharing in the blessings of the death of Christ on the cross that includes forgiveness of sin. So when we do this, this is one time all believers can come together on one table and celebrate and think about the Savior all at the same time. We all have times when we think about him differently, but during this occasion, Every believer is commanded to think about the Lord Jesus Christ at the same time. It is a celebration that takes back our mind back to the cross. Think about what he suffered. But then it's a celebration of, that brings great joy. That he's not on the cross. He's not in the grave. He's in heaven. And that we are looking forward to being with him one of these days. So it is a great celebration. Therefore, it has a spiritual significance. That's why the Bible sounds a strong warning to anyone who thinks this is a just a joking matter. Or I can take it anyhow I want. But no, you can't. Because there are consequences. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 11:27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to Examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you are falling asleep. But if we judge ourselves, we will not come under judgment. In other words, people who think, take this lightly, some of them went home and got sick. They didn't know why they were sick. Some people died. They didn't even know why they died. Here's the thing. It is a serious occasion. Therefore, it is one that calls for all of us to do a thorough examination of our soul before we partake of this. So part of that examination is check your thoughts. Check what happened during the break or whatever, what you picked up, even as I'm speaking, what's going in your mind. Check if it is contrary to God's word. At that point, you admit it before our Heavenly Father and say, I've messed up. And you'll be cleansed. And then you'll be ready to partake of this. On the other hand, if you think it's a joking matter, I've done my duty with you to warn you that you are treading on a dangerous ground. But for the believer who takes this very seriously, it is a great celebration. So let's pray so you get ready.
Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this great occasion that our Savior commanded us to celebrate. We realize that the human mind is not capable of uh, perceiving or celebrating this in the right way, apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So, it's a request that the Holy Spirit will enable us to celebrate this in a way to bring glory and honor to you. This is a request in Christ's name. Amen. You feel off, I think uh, uh, they already almost filled it up for you. Just pull it back. In the night just before our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread. After offering thanks, he said, eat, this represents my body. Father, we're thankful again for this celebration, and we pray that you continue to cause us to stay focused and think about your son as we celebrate this great occasion. This is our request in Christ's name. Amen. I give you a few moments to ponder about the significance of the cup before we actually partake of it. Can you get, uh, again, pull out the lower one? Again, our Lord, before he went to the cross, he took the cup after offering thanks, says, drink from it, all of you. If you would, take a hymnal and stand and we'll sing hymn number 186, The Old Rugged Cross. Till my trophy 
after the break and the Lord's Supper, we reviewed what we considered last week, first of all, the message of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 through 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. We said that the message is that you use your freedom in Christ in such a way to advance the spiritual needs of others. We indicated that that will lead to three responsibilities. The first one is that you should understand that not everything you have right to do helps others spiritually, but you are required to seek the good of others. So we say there are two parts to that first responsibility. The first part is understanding that not everything you do or that you have the right to do helps others spiritually. The second is that you are required to seek the good of others because we have that command, verse of 1 Corinthians 10, 24, where say nobody should seek his own good but the good of others. So the thing to seek here is given with the word good. We spent some time to show that that word seek is a word that came, uh, went through some process of development in the Greek language. And it is a word that also uh, means to desire something uh, also. So we gave a literal translation that reads is, uh, that he reads D of himself. When he talks about nobody should seek his own good, that's his own good means uh, the, the Greeks say he of himself or D of himself. So that literal phrase reminded us of the things we humans seek. And I mentioned three of them. We all humans seek material things. Every human being seeks honor or glory or praise from others. Sometimes we do that consciously and sometimes unconsciously. But we all do that. And so, in order to prove to those who say that maybe I don't do that. And I said, well, here's a very good test for you. If you are not willing to go against the grain or popular view of a, a society that does not agree with the scripture, then you are guilty of seeking human beings' approval. Because you don't want to be uh, left out or you don't want people to think bad of you. So you're looking for the approval. Now the, so we, see so that's the second thing we all look, at, uh, look for, beside the material things that we all look we also mentioned the fact that we do have that desire to seek to have right relationship with God, except that people do it in the wrong way through religion instead of through faith in Christ. So these three things that we seek help us in to see how that instruction, when it says nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. He helps us to see how we go about uh, what it means and how we go about uh, dealing with it. So the instruction means that, you sh- that we seek the three things, or we should not seek the three things in a way that will uh, be 
difficult for our spiritual life to exist. And so, to do that, we should say there are three things that we need to look at. Some of the things we mentioned. The first thing that we really mentioned is if you're going to avoid in a, in a, a negative way the instruction not to uh, mental, not to seek your own good but for the good of others. That to do that, that you must avoid selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. And we explained what uh, selfish ambition is in a short way. It is that desire to succeed or to be successful without any restrictions. No moral restriction. In other words, you want to do anything you want to do, you want to achieve, at all costs. That becomes a selfish ambition. Of course, the differentiating between selfish ambition and ambition itself or aspiration. That we said, you must have that. Everyone must have ambition or, or aspiration. Otherwise, life may not be enjoyable on this planet. So, but what we're concerned is the selfish ambition, which is again, you want to succeed without paying regard to your spiritual life at all costs. Now the second thing we say we should avoid is being a stumbling block to any believer. That means that, uh, as the psalmist says, we watch, watch, we watch what we say and we watch what we do before others. Now, we had given examples of this idea of being stumbling block with Peter. And we saw the first one was when the Lord predicted about his coming date on the cross. And Peter said, oh no, no, that's not going to happen. And the Lord rebuked him for being a stumbling block to him. That's what he said. Now, remember we said that the stumbling block can be through what we say or by our action. So we began to look at his action of Peter that also became a stumbling block to others. And that is really where we stopped in the first half in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. And we resume with that. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. It reads, When Peter came to Antioch, I posed him to, the, to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Now look at, that's why I say, Many times we all like to think we are exempted from some of the things we study because we are so perfect. But this is the Apostle Paul rebuking Peter. And what's Peter doing? Well, he was concerned with human praise. That's why he was concerned with those in Jerusalem. Because he wanted the approval. Now that's an apostle. So before you pat yourself at the back, you just need to uh, uh, come back to reality. And that's what he did. What he do? You know, Jews and Gentiles don't eat together. But in Christ, does does not exist. So they gather together, they eat and all that. But once 
One person came, or a group of people came. Oh, he started backing off. Why? Because he wants to place us in Jerusalem. And that's why Paul rebuked him. Says, look at what he says. The other Jews joined in his hypocrisy. So that by by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So here is the thing is, what Peter did became a stumbling block because others copied him. And they joined in, in segregation of believers, something that should not ever be done among believers. So anyway, the point though, is that you should avoid saying or doing something that can be a stumbling block for another believer. That is, that will cause another believer to sin. Now, if you follow this instruction, then you will avoid being a stumbling block to another believer, which, as was stated, is the second thing you should avoid to comply with the instruction, nobody should seek his own good but the good of others. Thus then, we have considered negatively what one should avoid to comply with the instruction. Again, nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. So we proceed to consider what the way we do it positively. In other words, we have focused on the negative aspects, what you can avoid, and you'll be doing the same thing. Now we'll look at the positive thing that you need to do. Positively, the first thing we should do to comply with the instruction, nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others, is to follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ as demonstrated in his coming to this planet to redeem us. His example is described by the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 7. Philippians Philippians chapter 2 Verses 5 through 7. It is, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So the Lord Jesus is a believer's example that should be imitated. Now consequently, the Holy Spirit, through Apostle Paul, instructs us to follow Jesus' example in being concerned for others. Now the first thing we are instructed regarding the Lord's Jesus' example concerns his thought process reflected in his attitude and actions. Now you probably may say to yourself that there's no mention of thought process in this passage of Philippians that we're looking at for the moment. But if you think for a moment though, you will recognize that attitude that one has is always the result of a thought. You cannot have an attitude if you don't think. <laughs> it's just impossible. So whenever, once you have an attitude, it's because of something that you're thinking. Something in your mind. That's why I say the thought process. Now that aside, the instruction of verse 5 of 
uh, Philippians 2. He said, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. It's literally from the Greek. Keep thinking. You see, so you see, there's a third prophet. Keep thinking this within you, which also in Christ Jesus. Now the standard Greek-English lexicon of Bauer, Dank, and Gingrich uh, suggests that the Greek may be translated something like this. Let the same kind of thinking dominate you as dominated Christ Jesus. Same kind of thinking, dominate. Now this, or the literal translation that we gave, is because the apostle used a present tense of a Greek verb that means to think. But in the verse that we're considering, the verb means to develop an attitude based on a careful thought or to have an attitude. Again, based on thought. Thus, the Holy Spirit wants us to make it our habit or have an attitude that the Lord Jesus Christ had. Now, we are in a sense to train our minds to have the attitude of the Lord Jesus Christ that led to the two actions mentioned in this passage of Philippians 2, verses 5 through 7. The first action of the Lord is that of not insisting on his right as God, because of God's plan for our redemption, should be fulfilled. It is this that is given in the sentence of Philippians 2, that we're looking at verse 6. Look, I say, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now, in, the, in this sentence, Apostle Paul meant to convey that although Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate state is God, he was willing not to hold to his right as God in order to come into this world to die for us. Now, he understood that taking on the human form will mean, while on this planet... He would temporarily have to depend on the provisions of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit instead of his right as a second member of the Godhead. So his attitude that the apostle wants us to uh, emulate was not insisting on maintaining his right as God while in incarnation. Christ understood if he did not Take this attitude, mankind will be doomed forever. So here is the apostle's point that he wants us to get. It is a great gain to make war to God. But our Lord gave up that gain temporarily to accomplish the task of redeeming mankind. But if our Lord did this, the Apostle then is saying, what right or privilege do we have that is so important that we cannot let it go in order to seek the good of another person? So, what is so dear that I must insist at the expense of being out of fellowship 
See, that's the thing. When I bring this in so close home. No. What is it that another human being will do to you? That's what being out of fellowship with. What is it? See, that's the, that's the way you bring it home. Is something that somebody does? Is what being out of fellowship with the Lord? This, that's why it's, you know, it becomes practical. Just think about, I mean, we all do all kinds of things that irritate others. But is that really what you being out of fellowship? That's the issue. So what is so great about my privilege that you cause me to look down on other believers? Do I have the right to insist on an advantage or privilege that I have and neglect helping a fellow believer? Now the second action of our Lord is emptying himself. This is expressed Still in Philippians 2, 7, where he said, But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now the verbal phrase, made himself nothing, is literally, he emptied himself. That's where it's written in the Greek. He emptied himself. So the literal phrase has of course been interpreted in different ways by interpreters, of this verse of Philippians because of how the Greek verb translated made, not, uh, made, nothing in the, um, made himself nothing in the NIV has been understood. For example, the word has been taken to mean to pour out, to pour out. So this meaning leads to the translation of the literal phrase emptied himself as something like this made no account of himself or as in the NIV made himself nothing. Now this notwithstanding the sense of the literal verbal phrase emptied himself is that Christ despite being God effaced all thought of self and poured out his fullness to enrich us. Thus it is not really a matter of emptying himself of divine attributes as some assert bets that he took on something he was not before. He took on the added nature of a servant. So we are saying that Jesus Christ acted by taking on the form of a servant because he wanted to serve us that is to do what that which is good for us. So the point of referring to this action of Christ is to tell us that to do good for others we should be willing to act as servants to others for their own good. Now put it another way we should be willing to serve others for their own good. Now be that then as may, the first thing we should do to comply then with the instruction of nobody should seek his own good but the good of others is to follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ means there is no right that we have that we can insist on as to cause us to displease our Savior by not seeking the good of others. Now it requires we be careful 
not to have a highly inflated opinion of ourselves. Now we should have the correct opinion of ourselves, but no more. We should be aware of who we are, but that should not cause pride in us. By this I mean, if the Lord has prospered you with material things, you should be aware of it, but not to the extent of arrogance, knowing that he can remove it all in a twinkle of an eye. Everything can go, can disappear. Likewise, if you are highly educated or highly placed in, in this life, you should be aware of it, but then you must not use this to the point of arrogance, where you look down on others and so unable to serve other believers. Furthermore, we should have the attitude of being ready and able to serve others. Now the second thing we should do to comply with instruction, nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others, is to strive to be continually or constantly controlled by the Holy Spirit. Now previously, we indicated that we should follow the example of Jesus Christ. But it is impossible to follow his example unless we strive to remain under the control of God the Holy Spirit. That is again to, be, to remain filled of the Spirit. Now Christ's earthly ministry was characterized by him being filled of the Spirit. That, he, that his earthly ministry was characterized by the filling of the, Spirit, of the Holy Spirit may be learned firstly from what Luke recorded about Jesus Christ before Satan tempted him in Luke chapter 4 verse 1. Luke chapter 4 verse 1. Hold on to that Luke. Luke chapter 4 verse 1 reads, Jesus, full of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan, from the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit in the desert. So that phrase, full of the Holy Spirit, tells us that the Lord Jesus in his humanity was under the control of the Holy Spirit as he functioned on this planet. Secondly, after his disciples returned from the mission work, he sent them. Luke tells us that Jesus Christ was full of the Holy Spirit as he thanked the Father for the success of his disciples' mission as we read in Luke chapter 10, verse 21. Luke chapter 10, verse 21. Luke chapter 10, verse 21 reads, At that time, Jesus, full of joy, through the Holy Spirit said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things 
from the wise and learned and reveal them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. See that phrase, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, indicates that Jesus was filled of the Holy Spirit. That is, he was under the control of the Holy Spirit who produced joy in him. So the point is that if we are to follow his example, we should strive to be filled of the Spirit. The feeling of the Holy Spirit is essential in thinking of the good of others. Now this is because if we are controlled by the Holy Spirit, we will not be self-centered, but concerned about others. Now many times when I say self-centered, some of us we hear you just go over your head. A self-centered person is always thinking about himself or herself. You are a self-centered person. You don't think about what I'm doing now. How is it going to affect the next person? People who do that, they are self-centered. So don't, say, don't dismiss it. It's always about you. Then you are a self-centered person. Everything runs around you. You are a self-centered person. You don't think about others. Anyway, so the thing though is, if you are controlled by the Holy Spirit, you will not be self-centered, but you will be concerned about others. Now you may wonder how the feeling of the Spirit will result in not being self-centered. And so let me show you how from the scripture. Now the feeling of the Spirit results in the fruit described in Galatians chapter 5 verse 22. Galatians chapter 5 verse 22. Galatians Chapter 5, verse 22. I'll put your marker in Galatians because I'll go to one passage and come right back to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 reads, May the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Now, so this passage says nothing about not being self-centered. But merely, this love as a facet of the feeling of the Spirit. So you say, then how, do, how is that making your point? However, if you have love produced by the Holy Spirit, then you certainly will not be self-centered. Now this truth is implied in the description of love given by the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 13 verse 5. 1 Corinthians, I mean, chapter 13, verse 5. 1 Corinthians, chapter 13, verse 5. 1 Corinthians, chapter 13, verse 5 reads, that's referring to love. It says, it is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. So that phrase, not self-seeking, is literally from the Greek, does not seek the things of itself. Does not seek of the things of itself. Now since love involves 
not seeking the things of itself, then when a person has love, that is the result of the feeling of the Holy Spirit, the person could not possibly be self-centered, as the individual would then be concerned about the interest of the object of the person's love. So I'm saying that if you have love, if you have love, that is the result of the feeling of the Spirit, you will be concerned about the good of the object of your love. In fact, it is the love that the Holy Spirit produces that will enable you to truly serve others, believers, or another person, as implied in the instruction of the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul, recorded now, go back to Galatians chapter 5, look at verse 13. Galatians 5 verse 13 reads, You, my brothers, we are called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Serve one another in love. So in any case, the second thing then, we should do to comply with instruction Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others is to strive to be constantly controlled by the Holy Spirit. The third thing we should do to comply without instruction, nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others is to strive to be humble. So we'll be concerned about others, to strive to be humble. Now it is this, that is conveyed in the passage that I we cited previously. I said I will return to go back to read now in Philippians chapter two, verse three. Philippians chapter two, verse three. Philippians chapter two, verse three. We we'll return there. Because I told you before, we'll come back to it before it's all over today. Philippians 2 verse 3 reads, Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Now remember, we spent time before dealing with that selfish ambition, what it is. Or vain conceit. But in humanity, consider others better than yourselves. Now our concern with this verse this second time though, is with the clause, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Now, now that's one of the things I say. That tells you what Christianity is all about. Because no human being can do that. It's impossible. But that's what I say in the first time. That's what makes you superior. Because the Holy Spirit lives in you. And as he lives in you, he can enable you to do something no human being is capable of doing. It's impossible. Unless you're faking it, and I know the world is full of fakers. But if you're not faking it, you realize what I just read, it's just not something that our natural self wants to do. So he says, again, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. So, I must really say that this instruction, when he said, but in humility, consider others better than yourself. That it reminds us, though, of the importance of the feeling of the Holy Spirit. Since it is 
completely opposite to how we think or function as humans. By nature, no human being wants to accept that someone is better than himself. That's by nature. We don't want that. And that's why when you say you're a Christian, you should understand what it all means. It means you've been put in a level that you don't function the way you used to function as an unbeliever. No unbeliever will do this. It's impossible. So why do you really suppose people then are in competition about material things? Why do you think so? You want to have a nice or a nicer car, a bigger house, or better this or, or better that. Why? Now, if your reason for this is because you need them and can afford them, then there is nothing wrong with that. But if it is because you want to show off that you are better than so and so, then you are wrong and has fallen into Satan's trap. Now the instruction in humility, consider others better than yourself, is perhaps the highest test of humility. The highest test of humility. Now you see, to the natural mind, such an instruction is impossible and unbelievable. So that even a believer not controlled by the Holy Spirit and not grounded in truth will find it difficult. You know, not that there are believers who are not highly placed as yourself, who are not as smart as yourself, or who are not respected as you are, or highly educated as you are. And so, the Holy Spirit says that you should consider such believers to be superior to yourself. How can this be? How can that be? Now, God is not mocking us. He cannot tell us what we are not capable of doing as believers. So, if I don't do what he says, the failure is on me, not on him. So, when he says this to us, it must be something he has equipped you and me to do. Now, so remember what the apostle says. That we should do whatever we are looking at, he says, in humility. So if you see yourself as being inadequate before God, and that all you are is a result of the grace of God to you, it is not difficult to accept and obey this instruction. Now because the command hinges on the word humility, because it's in humility, it will be necessary to consider the subject of humility briefly. So what is humility? What is it? Well, let me begin by what is not. First, it is not an outward, visible, self-abasement in gestures, lifestyle, or even clothing. In other words, I'll give you this thing, I can, if you can. A lady says, I'm going to be a bad lady. I'm going to wear all kinds of things so that nothing, whatever it is, no part of me shows up. Yeah, that's fine. That's great. Does it make you a humble person? 
Now you can be walking around in total arrogance, even though you admit that. So that's what I'm saying. It, can't, it doesn't mean that. So humility does not. It's not something of a, a gesture of per se. So you see, there are people who, because of their status in life, cannot affirm certain things. That does not mean they are humble. You know, it's, oh yeah, he's poor, very humble. No, it's just they can afford it. Doesn't mean that, that they are humble. Second, humility is not under evaluation of self. For example, if you are rich, you should not say that you are not rich for the sake of being humble. As in false. God made you rich. So you shouldn't be ashamed of it. Likewise, if you are highly educated or highly placed in life, humility does not mean the denial of these facts. Thought, humility, is not a natural virtue in man. Not natural. In other words, no one is born humble. No one is born humble. If you are born humble, then there should be no need for the instruction to be humble. As in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. First Peter chapter 5, verse 5. First Peter chapter 5, verse 5. First Peter chapter 5, verse 5 reads, Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you, clothe yourselves with humanity toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now Peter says humility is something that we put on as we put clothes. That is, he proved then that it is not an inherent characteristic as for example pride is. Now another passage that supports our assertion that humility is not an inherent Characteristic is Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3. Zephaniah Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3. It is Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, perhaps you will be shattered on the day of the Lord's anger. I note, he says that we should seek humility. Now, how can we seek what is natural to, to us? Because it says, seek it. See, the scripture nowhere tells us to seek things that are part of us. Rather, we are told to get rid of them, such as pride. Because that's inherent in us. 
part of a sinful nature. It is pride that caused the fall. So it is becoming part of a sinful nature, really, to be proud. That's why you say, take it off. <laughs> he didn't tell us to put it on. So having noted then that uh, what I've explained that all these are not humility. So we can now say, what is humility? What is it? Well, here it is. Humility is freedom from arrogance that results from full recognition that all we have and all we are come from God. Let me say that again. That humility means freedom from arrogance that results from full recognition that all we have and what all we are come from God. If you can think that way in your mind all the time, whatever I am, whatever I have, it's all from Him. You're going to be a humble person. Now there are several features of humility that must be understood to fully appreciate our definition of humility. Certain features. So let me give you four of these. First, there is a true and a false humility. Now we know this not only because of what we say that uh, humility is not what is not, but because of what the Holy Spirit says through Apostle Paul in Colossians 2 verse 18. Colossians chapter 2 verse 18. Now all I'm saying is there is a true humility and there's a false one. Now if you have ever been a manager in some in view of our people, you probably have seen that. Where there are people wanting to be promoted to the next whatever it is. And they act so nice. and Whatever you say, yeah, 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 they do it. Until they reach that position. Then you find out. They were not humble to begin with. They were just acting. That's false humility. Anyway, what I'm saying is, there is a false, there's a true one. That's why we have Colossians 2.18 that says, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual minds puffs him up with idle notions. So then from what the apostle says here, a false humility puts much emphasis on what is seen. It can be either a way of dress or a pretension in manner. On the other hand, though, through humility is a recognition that by ourselves we are inadequate, without dignity and worthless, while at the same time recognizing that we are of infinite worth and dignity because we are created in God's image. And because we're in Christ. See, in one way, you see 
with yourself as worthless, without dignity, but at the same time, you see yourself as you have been great one because you are in Christ. So, being knowing that, that's the first thing that we need to recognize in these features. Second, humility involves having a correct opinion of self while having a sense of one's littleness before God. Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 12 verse 3. Romans chapter 12 verse 3. Romans chapter 12 verse 3 reads, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with a sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. In other words, a humble person evaluates self without exaggeration. Now others may praise or compliment you, but the person knows the truth about self. Now the person relates every assessment of self to the grace of God. So that's, <coughs> that's what we see about <coughs> a person that uh, is humble. Third, humility is demonstrated in the spirit of being willing to serve others. Our Lord clearly demonstrated this during the last Passover. He celebrated with disciples prior to him instituting the Lord's Supper that we just finished celebrating. We see him showing that in John chapter 13 verses 4 and 5. John chapter 13 verses 4 and 5. We are saying that uh, humility is demonstrated in the spirit of being willing to serve others. And here is an example of it. John chapter 13 verse, three, uh, verse 4 reads, And he got up, that's the Lord, from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. See, because our Lord is humble, he demonstrated this by washing the feet of his disciples. Now he is doing here the work designated for servants or slaves, although he is the Lord and the master of all. Yes, look at what he did. That's a demonstration of one with humility willing to serve others. Fourth, humility involves great respect for the word of God. I don't think that you can ever be humble if you don't have a, what I call a sizzling respect for the word of God. You can be humble. I really can see you being humble. So, so then, a person 
who trembles at the word of God is a person who has a great respect for God. And if you if you're humble, you hear the word of God. Once you hear it, it shakes you. You want to do whatever it is. You're not there arguing in your mind. You want to because you're humble. Because a lot of times people are arguing, and I want what are you arguing with? And from what basis? When he tells you what to do or tells me what to do, what what will cause me to want to argue? Except arrogance anyway. But this is what it says in a, uh, regarding that kind of humble person. In Isaiah 66, verse 2. Isaiah 66, verse 2. It is, Has not my hand made all these things? And so they come into being, declares the Lord. Now look at the next thing. This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So if you are a humble person, you cannot assume that God does not know what he's saying in his word. Painful it may be, difficult it may sound, but if you are a humble person, you shake when you hear what God has to say. You should take his word with the ultimate respect. Now recall then that we are considering the third thing we should do to comply with the instruction of First Corinthians 10 verse 24 that we are studying, which again says, Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. That we stated then is to strive to be humble. So, We'll be concerned then about others. Now it is because of this that we are considering the instruction of Philippians 2 verse 3 that says, But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Now this instruction means, you should not consider yourself better than others. That's really, <laughs> on the surface, that's really at least what it begins to mean. But how should we really understand it? In a practical way. How do we understand that? Well, we should understand this as no believer should seek to stand out or make self to be more important than other believers in, say, in a local congregation. Now, it does not mean that the believer should not function in whatever capacity or gift that believer has. Now obviously, there are spiritual gifts in local assembly that make those who possess them to stand out or to be more noticed. This is not what the apostle means. Rather, what he's experiencing here is an attitude or that attitude which says, my opinion is better because I'm better than everyone. I'm right, and everyone else is wrong because of my knowledge or other factors. So it means that the believer must not operate under the control of self when dealing with others. It is required that the believer should keep thinking in terms of humility rather than in terms of arrogance 
That is what we have in the instruction. Of course, it is in the present tense, in the Greek, that is used, which means that the believer should constantly think and constantly regard others as better than himself. You may ask, in what sense? In what sense? First, in the sense that whatever the believer does, it should not be with the attitude that he wants to do it so that he receives special recognition that will cause him to exhibit pride. Don't have that attitude. You want to do, do it. But because you want to honor the Lord, not because you want to draw attention to yourself. Second, you put the needs then of others ahead of yours. In other words, you think about others. Whatever it is, think about others. How am I going to help them? So that's the thought that we have considered the third one. But then anyway, the fourth thing that we should do though, to comply with instruction, nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others is to be accommodating, to be accommodating to others or to adapt to things around you so we can do things that help other people. We adapt. Now the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul conveyed that accommodating other believers involving being willing to tolerate their weaknesses as we read in Romans chapter 15 verse 1. Romans chapter 15 verse 1. Now once we say accommodating, it's very important. Especially in dealing with humility. You need to be accommodating. So remember, we are not at the same level even spiritually. So even when you find that somebody is kind of not quite serious as they should, you still be accommodating. Doesn't mean you approve it. It just means that you Tolerate it in a way. So here it says, We who are strong are to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So if you consider yourself very strong, be patient. For the believers say crawling. Or what I call in spiritual diapers. Just be patient. Try. Don't make yourself to be the standard. You will understand that. Jesus Christ is. Just know, be patient. Whatever you have attained, you didn't begin there. Did you? No, you didn't. Somehow you, by the grace of God, you got there. We still going anyway, but at last, wherever you are now, is the grace of God. For that reason, be very tolerant. Be very understanding with others. Don't put yourself up as a standard. Now the matter of adapting to the circumstance of others has been illustrated, of course, previously in this epistle of 1 Corinthians by Apostle Paul, what he described in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 through 23. We have studied this, I'm just going to read it. It is, though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law. 
so as to win those under the law. To the those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in his blessings. So in any case, with this explanation of how to fulfill them, the instruction of 1 Corinthians 10.24, again it says, Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. With these explanations I have given you, we have completed what is necessary to understand your first responsibility in the passage of 1 Corinthians 10, verses 23 to 31 and 1 Corinthians 11.1. Anyway, this responsibility again is this. You should understand that not everything you have right to do helps others spiritually, but you are required to seek the good of others. Let's pray. As we close our study this morning, there may be someone here or someone listening over the internet. You are not a child of God yet. You're a nice person, and people tell you what a wonderful person you are. But my friend, what people say has nothing to do with your eternal salvation. Here's the truth. The truth is where you begin. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Our righteousness are like filthy right before him. So, based on us, whatever we can do, we don't have a leg to stand up. So that's where we begin. So when you know that, then you realize that there's only one thing that you can come to God in mercy, seeking His mercy. God's love is so wonderful that He demonstrated it by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, who left heaven with all His glories, lowered Himself because He wants to elevate you to sonship. He wants to elevate you so He can call you His brother or His sister. Now He did all that because He wants to give you eternal life. He created hell he knew the awfulness of what hell is like. It's not the place you want to spend eternity. Because we're talking about a place of a constant, eternal suffering with no end in sight. Just think about that. Just the idea that the human being is going to be there is baffling to the mind. But that's why Christ came. So you don't go there. Now, right now, you don't experience much of pain. But if you do, just kind of think about that little pain that you are uh, experiencing. If it is magnified in thousands and thousands, millions of times. Not with this body, with a different kind of body. And that's the reason Christ gave himself for you. He has paid it all, the sin that you and I have committed against God. With all that penalty, he took it. I think of it like a person Yes, a sledgehammer raised up to crack your head open and somebody stands and prevents that from happening. That's what Christ did for you and me. He took the blow of the penalty of sins so that we do not spend eternity in the lake of fire. So what you think about him determines your eternal salvation. 
So the Bible says, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. What are you to believe? Again, the Bible says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Believing in Him, you have life through His name. If you believe that He died, rose again the third day, and is now seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father, you will receive eternal life. So believe in Him and escape the coming judgment of God. On the other hand, if you say, well, I don't really know, I don't think about it, my friend, you are the door of hell. You are very close to it. You haven't entered here because you're still alive. So believe him and escape it. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the study of your word. We pray that God, the Holy Spirit, will challenge us so that we understand what it means that we should do things in order to help our fellow believers in order to serve our fellow believers, so that in every way we will carry out this responsibility of knowing that although we have right to do something, but that we should be concerned with how that helps other believers spiritually. This is our request in Christ's name.